Good evening. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Genesis chapter 16. I want to thank Frank for speaking to us last week. I got to hear the recording and he did a great job. Uh, And just to follow up, he mentioned a seminar. We're going to have a little seminar this Thursday here at the church uh, that Frank and I will be leading on just how to talk to people about the truths of the gospel, what that might look like. Um, So that'll be here Thursday this week. Uh, We'll share more of that after the service as well. We're going to be in chapter 16, continuing our Genesis series about Abraham. We've been learning about the faith of Abraham. This has challenged us to consider our own faith, and it's also kind of laying a foundation for us before the fall, where we will be studying the book of Romans that builds a lot off of the life of Abraham and things that we see in Genesis. This week, we're calling it Painful History, chapter 16. Um, And if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with us on page 11, I think it is, in the black Bibles that are under the chairs there. So we're encouraging you to grab a, grab a Bible, flip through it for yourself. Um, chapter 16, you know, there are no coincidences in our world, but seems like a coincidence that God had us in this chapter this week. I was away at the pastor's conference last week uh, as our kind of world was exploding with all of this uh, racial, uh, what would you call it, division in our country. Um, it's been upsetting, and probably a lot of you, your stomach's been churning, and uh, just been praying for peace and for unity. Uh, as we think about this, I thought it was interesting that God led us here to Genesis chapter 16. There are things in our own spiritual story that are painful, that are hard to look at. One of the things we did at the pastor's conference last week was uh, the, the main speaker was an African-American guy named Tabidi Anubwile, and he was on a panel with four other African-American pastors in our church planters network. Um, We basically just heard from them, what's it like growing up black in America? Um, And so we just got to hear their story. One of the guys, his story really stuck out in my mind because he was about my age. I'm growing up white in America. I didn't realize how bad it was for my brothers that grew up black in America, even in my era. This guy grew up in Dallas. I grew up uh, 20 miles away in central Texas. Um, We're about the same age. He was sharing a story about Working with his dad's business, he and his brother would deliver newspapers with their dad in Dallas, in South Dallas. And they were one morning, you know, right around dawn, rolling newspapers and getting them together in an empty lot across the street from a hotel. I saw a guy come out of the hotel. Uh, They'd been there working like an hour or so. See somebody, you know, come out. He had just woken up. He's coming out for his morning cigarette. Guy just standing in the hotel parking lot, smoking a cigarette, standing there in a t-shirt and some pajamas, right? Um, as they're working and they see this guy across the street taking a smoke in the morning, some police drive up. A bunch of police jump out. He says about five cops jump out, yell at the guy, cuff him, uh, and start beating him. My friend said, you know, what stood out to him at first as a 12-year-old was this cool karate chop move that one of the cops used on him. He said the guy crumpled, but then he said then he just got sick because they just kept going. Um, and he and his brother started trying to yell, hey, this, this guy didn't do anything. We just saw him come out of the hotel room. Like, right, he was, He's just been in that hotel room. He, he's not the guy you're looking for. And his dad grabbed him and his brother, threw him in the car, told them to shut up, don't cause any problems. They didn't want to get mixed up in it. Um, after a while, it became apparent that the cops realized that he wasn't the guy they were looking for. This guy that they'd already beat up and cuffed and thrown on the ground wasn't the guy. So they uncuffed him and jumped in their cars and took off. And so the guy walks over and is talking to my friend and his brother and their dad, 
Uh, you know, he's got like blood on his shirt, on his pajama pants, and smoking another cigarette. And my friend was just so upset by the injustice of it. He was saying, we need to do something. We need to do something. And the other guy just laughed. And he said, what are we going to do? Call the police? And uh, as we heard that story and heard several other stories, um, my wife and I were just in tears on and off throughout the stories throughout just, you know, hearing different questions and different interactions of these guys. And one of the things that struck me that I think has been missing in all the interactions that you see on TV uh, and on Facebook and just kind of the, the public soundbite culture is, is you miss the human interaction. People, we often run to political solutions. We run to uh, the facts. We run to statistics instead of just treating people as human beings that need empathy need to be listened to. Um, and I was struck by just the concept of Romans 12. And I've, you all have heard me, if you've been around the church long, you've heard me say this many times. God calls us to weep with those who weep, to grieve with those who grieve, to rejoice with those who rejoice. We're, we're to meet people where they are. You don't meet people with statistics and facts and numbers. And it's not like it's wrong to ever talk about those things. Once you've established a relationship with someone, then you can have that conversation, right? Like once you've listened to someone, the, the old phrase from Young Life is, people don't care what you know until they know how much you care. And so we need to first and foremost treat people as image bearers, as people made in the image of God that deserve dignity and respect. And we need to listen. And we need to be willing to weep with people. And my prayer is that that would be the kind of place that we are. I've seen that evidenced in, in many ways. But as our culture kind of hits you know, new bumps in the road, there's this temptation, again, that we would run to politics, that we would run to political solutions, to stats, to demographics, and forget just treating people like human beings. And that's really where it should start. And so, again, as I was thinking about everything that's been happening in, in our, our context, that was amazing that God brought us to this text. Because this text is also about dealing with our painful spiritual history. There's things that are painful in our past as a country, And thankfully, we have made progress in some areas, but arguably haven't made as much progress as we need to. But there's also painful things in our spiritual history, and we see that in the Scripture. And what's really amazing, and what's kind of the good news of this, is that's one of the things that makes the Bible a believable book. Every other spiritual book um, kind of varnishes over the weaknesses of the founders. But our book says, oh, yeah, all the founders were totally messed up, but their God is great. Their God is awesome. But yeah, the people who started this whole thing, Abraham, the apostles, all these guys, they had all kinds of problems. And our, our book shows those problems with the reality. It just sets it out on the table. So I, I want to invite you into the story that we're going to read here in chapter 16 with that in mind, that Abram, Sarai, Abraham, and Sarah, their names are changed to later. They made all kinds of horrible mistakes. Um, but God didn't give up on them. God's still working with them. So chapter 16, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. 
Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she'd conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, a spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, which means God hears because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. I'm going to pray, ask that God would help us with the story today. Um, Another way to say what I think I already said a little bit earlier, Robert Alter, Jewish scholar, says that the Old Testament narratives take reality, they take life as it really was in the ancient Near East, and it presents it as it really is and as it really was, but then it challenges the culture and the assumptions of the time. And that's what we're going to see as we unpack the story today, Uh, that God shows us, yeah, this is how people lived. This was how they lived, and they thought it was just fine. But the way the story is written, it's written in such a way for us to go, but is this the way we should live? Is this the way it should be? Somebody pray for us and ask for God's help. God, we thank you that you love us, and we know that because of Jesus. We know because of his grace, because of your spirit. I pray that you'd help us to listen, to have ears, to hear what you're saying in this text, and what you're saying in this story, and God, we pray that you would heal us as individuals, help us to show dignity and compassion to one another. Pray that you'd heal our, our people, our land, this country. It's a lot of different people from a lot of different places coming together, and really only by your spirit can you build a new tribe, a new nation out of every tongue and tribe and nation and language. So we pray that you would do that for your glory. Pray that you'd help us to hear from you tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we can look into our spiritual past and we can see a painful history here. We can see uh, difficult things. And as I looked through kind of the unfolding acts of the story, I saw three basic sections. Um, The first section is the standard temptation, right? We see a a temptation that's going to echo in some ways the temptation in the Garden of Eden. And then we see abusive slavery. We see the misuse of other human beings, which again reminds us of some of the struggles we've had in our own nation here. And then finally, though, we're going to see a surprising grace in the end where God shows up in surprising ways. And so the first thing I want us to look at is the standard temptation. Um, As you hear this story, uh, if you would have been the first audience hearing this in the ancient Near East, you would have had echoes of the parts of the story you'd just heard recently, which would have been in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, We had another story of a man and his wife getting into trouble. Y'all remember that story? We call them Adam and Eve. I have a picture here to visually wake you up to this because we're not an oral culture, right? That means we don't learn as much by listening. We learn more by 
looking at text on a page and looking at images and memes flashing by on a, on a feed, on a screen, right? Um, but back then, they, they learned a lot by listening, right? A lot of storytelling around the campfire, a lot of verbal cues they would hear. And so some of those pop up in our text. The, the visual cue I've got for us is I've got a snake and an apple. What does that remind you of if you see a snake hanging off a tree with an apple? For most of us in the West, it reminds us of Eve and Adam being tempted in the garden by the serpent to take the forbidden fruit. So that's a visual cue that a lot of us would, would know in the West. Um, and we have some, again, oral or verbal cues that we hear in the text here. We have a man who is listening to his wife when he shouldn't be. Now, I just need to clarify that point and kind of make sure that the guys don't run with this. It doesn't mean that, husbands, you should never listen to your wife, okay? What this means is, husbands, don't listen to your wife when she says, hey, let's sin and violate God's commandments. That's when you're not supposed to listen to your wife. Generally, you should listen to your wife because she's smarter than you, okay? So I just want to be clear that I've gotten that on the record, all right? It's kind of a universal natural law. We all know it to be true. But on the occasion that she asks you to violate God's commands, you say, no, that's not what we should do. So in verse 1, it says, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. So their promise that they would have children, but they don't have children. So they're like, let's take matters into our own hands. Let's, let's make this happen, right? We'll help God out. You ever feel that way? Like God's, God's a little, he's struggling. He needs my help. He needs me to help him fulfill his plan. It says she had a female Egyptian, Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. Nobody would have thought anything was wrong with this in their day. This would have just been a standard way of treating your servant. Um, that doesn't make it right, does it? So she says, here's my servant. Take my servant. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. That's supposed to remind us of Adam and Eve. Adam listened to Eve. Again, this doesn't mean don't ever listen to your wife. It just means when she's saying, step outside of God's will, you should say no. That's not what we should do. Verse 3, so after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as wife. So we've got, here's the verbal echo that should really jump out took and gave, right? So in Genesis chapter 3, we have a wife taking this forbidden fruit and giving it to her husband. And we have this echo now in chapter 16, just 13 chapters later in the same book, in the same story, where the wife takes and gives. And it's something outside of the revealed will of God. It shows us very clearly, again, Robert Alter says that they're, they're showing us in the ancient Near East, this is how people lived, but there's a twist in the stories, right? There's a twist in the way these Bible stories are told where they're like, this is how people lived, but ooh, is this really how we should live? And in verse 4, we get this twist where it says, and he went into Hagar and she conceived, and when she saw that she'd conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So in the Old Testament, we have examples of people doing all the time things that we're not supposed to do. And I've tried to make this very clear as we've studied Abraham, that we're not supposed to just imitate Abraham, right? You don't, you don't follow the kind of Sunday school method of just saying, if someone's an Old Testament hero, I should do whatever they do, because that will get you into trouble. That's, that's a bad idea. And so we want to think about it from another angle. When Jesus talks about his ethics of marriage and sexuality, how does he explain it? 
He doesn't say, well, let's follow the example of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all their kind of crazy mixed up marriage and family dysfunction. No, he doesn't say imitate the patriarchs. He says, let's go back to creation. And so Jesus, particularly in Matthew 19 and Matthew 5, talks about marriage and sexuality and says it's a boundaried covenantal thing based on creation. It's complementary. You've got a man, you've got a woman. They leave their families. They bond and make a new unit. And, and these are the boundaries of marriage and family. And so that's, that's why us weird old fogey traditionalists believe what we believe about marriage and sexuality. I'd love to talk to you more about that because I know like nobody believes that anymore, so I'm, I'm open. I'd love to discuss it with you. I'd love to talk more about this, but this is, this is where we pull it from, right? So we look back into creation accounts in early Genesis. We say, that's the way it's designed. Then we hear these echoes in the New Testament where Jesus says, this is the plan. This is how God designed it. We say, that's the plan. And so then when we see Abram and Sarai stepping outside of this, we say they're grasping forbidden fruit. We say they've decided to live outside of how God has revealed to them to live. God has said, this is the design. And they say, we have a better idea. We can have more fun. We can have pleasure. We can have children. Whatever it is that you want, we can have it if we step outside of the boundaries. But again, the story shows that there are problems, that that things go kind of wonky when this happens. As we think about the definitions of marriage and family in our society, uh, we look at this story and we see, okay, that's not really a temptation for us, right? Like most of you don't have a slave that you could offer to your husband to have more children, right? Slavery is illegal in our country and that's not how we do things anymore. Um, This would have been a normal temptation for them. This would have been completely appropriate culturally in their day, but it still violated God's commands. So my question to you are, are there things in today's world that are completely appropriate in our culture, yet still violate God's commands. I say, yeah, there's all kinds of things, right? We struggle with this all over the place. We're completely confused about God's biblical norms of marriage and sexuality. And so I just want to challenge you with that. The first thing that I see is really an issue for those of us in the church is the idolatry we've made out of traditional views of marriage and family. I think that's really where we need to start. We've kind of propped up the traditional view of marriage and family And instead of just saying, this is God's design for marriage and sexuality, we've said it's not just his design, but it's like awesome and it'll solve all your problems, right? And those of you that have actually gotten married and had a family, you know it it didn't instantly save me, right? Like it doesn't transform your life and bring heaven on earth now. It's beautiful and there's some great gifts and you want to be thankful for God's gifts, right? But it doesn't just like, everything's better now. I don't even need Jesus anymore. I now have the traditional marriage and family, right? Like that's, but that's kind of how we paint the picture. We paint this picture to young people like, hey, just hold on, be pure. And if once you get there, oh, it'll be so worth it. We see this. Here's another way it's painted in, in movies. We, we see this uh, image of romance where you kind of wake up in the morning next to somebody and you roll over and you look into their eyes and your hair looks nice and your breath smells good. That, that's not really what it's like. I just want you to know. I mean, my wife always looks good and always smells good, but me, I'm stanky, right? Like, it's not, it's not, it's not like that, right? And so we do these things, we make these fantasies out of it that, that aren't really true. The Apostle Paul actually goes so far to say it's better to be single. He actually says that in 1 Corinthians 7. Yet in the church, we're always saying, no, no, you've got to get married, you've got to have kids, you've got to do this traditional thing. But Paul says, no, it's better to be single. 
just be celibate. Don't get married. You don't have to, you don't have, to have sex to be satisfied in this world. You can live without it. You can serve other people. You're going to have all this time on your hands. You're going to have all this freedom. And you can live a whole fulfilled life. But we, that just blows our mind. Like We can't even imagine that in our culture. That makes no sense to us. So I think we've got to start there with just how we make an idol. We make a false god out of our traditional views of marriage and family. And that's damaging to single people. That's damaging to divorced people. That's damaging to people that struggle with homosexual attraction. It's, it's damaging to all kinds of people where we make it out as if this thing over here will solve all your problems when it won't. It's, it's just a calling. Some people are called to it. Some people aren't. It's a gift. It's, it's not like it's a bad thing, but it's also not the thing that solves all our problems in life, and, and we need to face that. I think one of the other issues that we really struggle with in our culture, at least when I'm talking to guys, is pornography. We've gotten to a point where pornography has just kind of become normal, uh, and I really want to encourage you guys to, to get help, because I just know statistically like half of you in the room are really struggling with it. So I would say get help. Just know so many people are struggling with it, and it's worth it to get help because it's killing you and it's hurting other people. It's damaging. So I just want you to know that. And I know not just guys, but girls as well. But just, just know that it's a forbidden fruit, that it's, it's not God's design, and it's poisonous. It hurts us. And it enslaves the people that are involved in that industry. So we want to recognize it as, as a damaging thing. Again, something that's completely normal in our culture, that everybody just says, oh, it's fine, it's, it's not hurting anybody. But it is. It's outside of God's design. I think another issue that we really struggle with today, and um, we see all the time people that come to our church, is just people shacking up before they get married, just trying to enjoy the intimacy without the commitment and the covenant. I would say, again, that's stepping outside of God's boundaries. I want to encourage you to, to get help. We, we'd love to walk with you in figuring out, okay, how, how do we do this right? Like, okay, we've stepped too far into this thing. There's not God's plan, then how do we how do we pull ourselves back out of this? What does it look like? It can be really messy. You can have involved relationships, and you're not sure how to untangle that. Love to Again, we'd love to talk to you about that and try to walk beside you as you seek to do God's will in your life. And then uh, the other one, too, that's just become much more common in our culture today is homosexual practice. Just coming to terms with, okay, that's still outside of God's design. It doesn't mean we hate on people that are tempted in this way any more than we hate on people that are tempted in any other way in life. We just say, hey, we love you as you are. You're welcome here. But, but this is God's design, and this is not God's design. So we want to we help you walk in faithfulness, which is going to be hard for you, just like it's hard for me to walk in faithfulness, just like it's hard for everybody else to walk in faithfulness. It's hard for all of us to walk in faithfulness. Um, so we want to lock arms and help each other out, be a community that tries to help each other be faithful to God's design so that we can avoid these, again, what I would call standard temptations of, taking and giving, grasping this forbidden fruit that we think is going to solve our problems, but in the end, it doesn't really. Well, the next thing that we see as the story unfolds is abusive slavery, and we already began to see that, right? Just in the fact that uh, Sarai said, here, I've got a slave, take her, right? Like, where, where is Hagar's view and all, right? Like, what she thinks doesn't really matter because she's just the slave. She's just the servant. So she's just given to Abram and Treated as a wife. Verse 5 says it this way. Verse 5, Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And so Sarai is pretty hot now, right? And if you're a husband, you're thinking, 
It was her idea, right? Like, that's how we often think as husbands. We think, okay, me and my wife have walked into this bad decision together, but it's not my fault because I did what she wanted, right? And again, if if your wife suggests a bad idea, it's your responsibility to say, that's a bad idea, honey. We shouldn't do that, right? And so you can't just push it off on her. Abram should have stood up and said, yeah, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. Now let's fix it. Now let's clean up the mess. But Abram doesn't do that. Here's what Abram does. Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. So again, he doesn't take responsibility. He just gives it away. He's passive. Again, right? Like silent Adam. While the serpent's tempting his wife, Adam's just standing by watching. And here, Abram's like, Hey, it's your thing. You take care of it. You, you clean up the mess. Do whatever you want to do. And he just, he just gives it over to her. That's not servant leadership. One of the most beautiful pictures of servant leadership that we see in the Bible is in John chapter 13. Guys, if you, if you want to avoid being Abram, if you want to avoid being Adam, just sitting there silent when you should have been chopping the head off the snake, the way to avoid it is to follow Jesus' work in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, it says Jesus knew where he came from and knew where he was going. It's just like this beautiful phrase, right? He was assured of the Father's love for him. And so in our gospel security, we know who we are, we know where we're going, then we can stoop and serve. It says Jesus took up a towel, took up some water, stooped and washed his disciples' feet. That is servant leadership. Again and again, Jesus says, this is what it means to lead, serve others. So guys, that, that's what it should look like in your marriages. Instead of just going, hey, what wasn't my thing, we, we should stoop and serve in humility. It says, once he gave the responsibility over her, then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. So she was abused, and Hagar had to run for her life, right? Like, okay, I got I to get out of here. But it gets interesting. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress Sarai. So she's running away, right? She's scared. She's running for her life. But it's really cool. Another echo from the garden story. God says, where have you come from and where are you going? Isn't that interesting? Why do you think God says that? Do you think God says that? This is the theology test for you. Do you think God says that because he doesn't know who she is, where she came from, or where she's going? Do you think that's why? No? Most of what we know about God is that he knows everything, right? So... He's asking because he's inviting her into relationship. He's asking because he's the God that pursues us when we're running away and when we're hiding. A lot of times we think of God like he's lost, but we're the one that's lost. And God is seeking us. God's pursuing us. We see that most clearly in the story of Jesus. But I want to go back to this text here, and it says, The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, which means God hears, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He should be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she's being abused. She's on the run. And God comes to her and he says, Hey, 
see you. It's going to be okay. You're going to have all these offspring. You're going to multiply. You're going to have more children. I'm actually going to bless you through this. Hang on. Go go back to her. Submit to her. We're going to work this out. And what we see here is we see a, a challenge to the way Sarai has been treating her. If this was a traditional ancient Near Eastern text, it would basically justify Sarai and say, yeah, Sarai's great and nothing she did was wrong. But the way the story is written is we're to, we to feel sorry, we're to feel empathy and sympathy for Hagar. The story's purposely written that way. And the crazy thing is, Hagar's an Egyptian, right? Egyptians are always the bad guys in these Bible stories, right? But here, she's a slave. She's low down on the totem pole. She's an Egyptian, the people that are always mistreating Israel. Sarai is completely within her rights, according to the laws of the day, to mistreat her. So Sarai's just doing what's right, right? She, she's disrespectful. I'm going to beat her. She's going to run. In all those ways, that, that fits the normal way they did things in that world. But the story is perfect, purposefully written in a way where God shows up, shows dignity to her, and reassures her that she's going to have blessings. And shows her personhood. I think one of the biggest problems in our history and the specifics of how slavery went down in our country is we denied personhood to certain ethnic groups, specifically African Americans, and saying, we're going to call them three-fifths of a person. We're going to say they're not really a person. We're going to deny that the image of God resides in this person. And that's kind of where everything fell apart. And so I think it's, it's helpful just on a technical point to distinguish that the, the chattel slavery that we had, the racist slavery we had, the personhood denying slavery that we had in the United States uh, was actually f- far worse than this kind of slavery, and far worse than the, the kind of slavery that was common during the writing of the New Testament. So a lot of people wonder, like, why wasn't slavery more openly condemned in the Bible? Well, it was really a different system, right? I mean, slavery in the Bible was more like a long-term contract. You know, in the Old Testament, there were boundaries. It was only seven years, and you could be released. Uh, in the New Testament, oftentimes slaves were much more highly educated even than their owners. And, the, you know, it was just a completely different system. It just wasn't like our system. It wasn't based on a particular race. There were just a lot of other variables. So you could still argue that it's not a good idea, right? I'm not arguing for slavery here. I'm just saying it was a different thing. And so the problem, what was really grotesque and hideous about the way we did it in our country was we denied personhood to people. We said, you don't have the image of God in you. And that's, that's, that's the abuse. That's the abuse. I have a picture here of someone in chains, and this is a reminder of our own, again, our own painful history in our country. And as we think about the specifics of our own painful history, I think it's important that we be honest about it and not be willing, uh, not run away from it, but be willing to face it. Uh, We have this great example in the Bible in Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is praying a corporate confession of sin on behalf of the Israelites. It's a really important theological point. Daniel was one of the holiest guys in the Bible. And Daniel says... Lord, we have sinned against you. Daniel says, it's our problem. And I believe we need to have a little bit of that in ourselves. We need to face up to what our country has done and not just go, well, I didn't do it. Well, my grandfather didn't have any slaves. You know, like, stop justifying yourself, right? Daniel, again, read the book of Daniel. He's like the holiest guy in the Bible next to Jesus, right? Maybe there's one other in the running. But 
We can't find a lot of sin in Daniel's life when Daniel's confessing corporate sin. He's owning the sin of his people. So I think there's, there's something to that, especially when we look at Jesus, right, who, who owned corporately the sins of his people in the most complete and mind-blowing way you could possibly imagine, right? Jesus completely owned our sins to the degree that if we trust in Jesus, our sins are placed on him and his righteousness is given to us. That God delights in us and loves us because of Jesus being willing to own our sin. Now, we can't own sin to that degree, right? We have an example there to follow. And again, when we look at the human example of Daniel, we see this example of praying, confessing, being open about it in a tribal kind of sense, saying, yeah, my people messed up. And I think we need to be willing to say that as well. We need to be willing to say that as well. My, my other thing that I think we need to think about is how we actually work that out in our day-to-day life. So I think most of us would say, yeah, that was wrong. Our past has some sinful stuff in it. We shouldn't have denied personhood to particular ethnic groups. Uh, and I don't do that anymore, so everything's fine now, right? Like, is it just all, everything's fine now? Well, think in your own mind, who are the people in your life that you struggle to show dignity to? Who are those people, Right? Like when you see someone killed on the news and you find out, oh, they were a criminal, do you immediately think, oh, well, then that's fine. They should have been shot 17 times. They're not really a person. They're a criminal, right? Like are there certain categories of people that you think, yeah, they're, they're less than a person. They don't deserve what I deserve because here's the way the theology of the Bible paints us is we all deserve judgment. We all deserve wrath. We all deserve hell. And Jesus gave us grace. He looks at us and loves us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't say, uh, I'm going to die for those of you that have cleaned yourselves up. He says, I'm dying for all of you sinners. So in our own life, we need to start cataloging that. You need to start kind of flipping through the files in your brain and go, who are the people that I'm just like, yeah, whatever, what's those people, you know? Who are those people? Who are those people that you don't have time for? Who are those people that gross you out? For those people that you don't want to be around. And pray that God would teach you to be like Jesus, to show love to them, show dignity to them as made in the image of God. And I believe as we start recognizing that, we will begin to move beyond the, the sins of our past. The last thing I want us to see here is surprising grace. There's this pattern that we already were picking up on in this story where God was showing dignity to the slave woman, to Hagar. He's showing up to the slave woman. There's this phrase that repeats again and again that that you should hear the verbal repetition of the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. A lot of theologians think the angel of the Lord, which in Hebrew would be the the messenger of Yahweh, right? This very personal covenantal name of God. Yahweh is the name that he kind of reveals himself to Moses with. It's this personal I am who I am name. And so a lot of theologians think that the messenger or the angel of Yahweh, the Lord, is actually a pre-incarnate Christ. Um, I don't know. Sounds like a cool idea. We just, we just know this is a very intimate appearance of God, right? So whether you want to think about it as Jesus before he came to earth as a baby or just God, however you want to think about this, this is God showing up. And it's repeated again and again and again. And what's really interesting is people don't name God very often. That's a rare thing that happens in the Old Testament. But in this story, Hagar, an Egyptian slave woman, names God too. So there are all these things that that show the surprising grace 
to this person that's been abused, that's been treated as a slave, God shows up. God loves her. God, again, is teaching us now to identify not just with our failed heroes, but to identify with these victims of abuse and see them with the same, dig- same dignity that, that he sees them with. So let's look at verses 13 through 16. He shows up. They're naming the son Ishmael, which means God's hears. In verse 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. She says, I'm going to call you the God of seeing. Because I see that you're the God that looks after me. Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. Be a great name for a rock band, right? And this means the well of the living one. Beer Lahai Roy. The well of the living one. And it lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael, which means God hears. God hears us. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So we have her naming God. You are a God of seeing. And she says, here I've seen the one that looks after me. So she names him the God that sees her and says, and I've seen you and you're the one that's looking after me. I have a picture I found of a little kid hiding behind mom's hand uh, this morning at church. There was a, we were kind of praying before the service and someone had their four-year-old with her and she was just she just couldn't bear to look at us, right? She was just like hiding in terror from all of us. And it just reminded me of, of the way we hide from God. And again, this should give us echoes of the garden. Like I said already, there's God looking like, where, where are you? Where have you come from? What are you doing? God pursuing us in our hiding. And she says, you're, you're the God that sees me. You're the God that pursues me. And I, wanna, I want you to see that. In this story, uh, again, it's a painful history. We see our Hebrew, our, our hero, Abram and Sarai, kind of failing us, letting us down. And we see the victim of abuse being shown dignity and surprising grace from God. And I want to encourage you that, that you may feel like others have abused you. Not just feel like, others may have abused you. Or you may feel like, man, I've failed God in such tremendous ways it's going to take a long time for me to clean myself up before I can come back into God's presence. I want to encourage you that God is the God that's coming after you. God is the God that's pursuing you, that shows surprising grace for those that have been victims of abuse, for those that have sinned, for those that have been filled with shame and just feel like I'm untouchable. God can't get close to me. God's always chasing after us. He's always coming in close and saying, no, I'm the God that's going to look after you. I'm the God that's going to show grace to you. I want you to not forget that because I know some of you are just stuck in that moment of thinking, I can't be touched. I've done things no one else has done. Things have been done to me that are too bad to describe. I'm beyond God's reach. And I want to assure you that you're never beyond God's reach. He's God, right? You're just not that great. You're not so incredible that God can't reach you. He can come after you. He is pursuing you. He he loves you. Just as we wrap up and think about just this whole story, the painful history really that all of us come from because all of us have painful parts in our background, I'm reminded of what Paul says about these stories in Galatians. So in Galatians chapter 4, Paul is making it really clear that these stories are teaching us bigger things about being born of the flesh or being born of the Spirit. 
gospel talks about this idea as well. The gospel of John, it talks about, are you born of just human will or are you born of God? And Paul makes it clear that in Christ, because of what Christ has done for us, taking our sin upon himself, giving us his righteousness, we're born into the family of God, despite our painful history. It doesn't matter where we came from. It doesn't matter what neighborhood we grew up in. It doesn't matter what our parents said about us or didn't say about us. It doesn't matter what other people have done to you or what you've done to yourself. God is coming after you, and he's proven that in Jesus. Let me pray for us, and then we'll respond in worship together. God, we thank you that you love us and you revealed yourself to us in Jesus, pursuing us, seeing us, caring for us. God, I pray for those in this room tonight that are still hiding, that are still afraid to come out. Father, we pray that you would help them to see that you are the God that sees them, that you know them, that you love them in Christ. Lord, help us to trust you. And Father, we pray that as we trust you and see your grace and see your goodness, that that would lead us then to repentance, to living in new ways, to beginning to actually obey you. But God, we thank you that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.